The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. One of the key issues that we have been discussing on a number of recent programs is the practical applications of archaeology, especially in terms of contemporary realities, contemporary geopolitics, and contemporary issues that confront the world as a whole. One of the main topics that has come up, especially as a result of recent political developments, both in the United States and across the world, is the entire question of climate change. And climate change has become become one of the new frontiers in archaeological research, as well as one of the, for lack of a better word, hooks that brings archaeology into a situation of contemporary relevance when we start to talk about why do archaeology, other than trying to understand uh, the past or to dig up pretty things or even any kinds of things. And with respect to that, Um, There are a number of researchers, especially younger researchers, who have launched into the question of climate change and archaeology, and I'm very pleased to bring two of them to the program today. Uh, My first guest is Dr. John Marston, who is the assistant professor in the Department of Archaeology at Boston University, and he is the director of Boston University's Environmental Archaeology Laboratory. John, thank you for uh, appearing on the program. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. And my second guest is Dr. Catherine West, who is a research assistant professor in the Department of Archaeology at Boston University and the director of Boston University's Zoe Archaeology Lab. Before we uh, go into this, and welcome to the program, by the way, Catherine, sorry. Thank you. Okay, before we actually get into the heart of the matter, I just want to, as way, by way of introduction, uh, indicate that these types of research that our specialists are talking about today, one of whom, uh, Dr. Marston, deals with um, the study of agriculture, land use, and plant remains, and of course, tracking the evolution of that type of usage is very critical in terms of understanding not only human change, uh, changes in the human condition, but also the climates in which uh, people made those adaptations. And by the same token, 
Dr. West's, West's work in the area of animal remains uh, proceeds along the same lines. There is a clear correlation between the availability and the exploitation of ancient animals for human consumption and subsistence, also vis-a-vis -vis climate change and the uh, general record of the human condition. So uh, let's start with you, uh, John. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into this field of research and uh, archaeology generally and your specialization um, in particular. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's always kind of funny. Um, you meet a lot of people who say, wow, you know, archaeology, I always was interested in that from the time I was a child, or, I, you know, I've known I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was six, uh, and, and that is not the case for me. I was very much interested in biology, and in particular in sort of ecology and understanding environmental histories um, by using different types of biological remains. And when I um, was in high school, I also got very interested in ancient history and sort of saw these as parallel tracks. While I was in college, I had the opportunity to see a course offered called Paleoethnobotany, and I thought, what in the world is this? It seems to be a class about the archaeology of plants, and I'm really interested in archaeology, and I'm really interested in plants and environments and ecosystems, so why don't I just go ahead and take this class and see if um, that's something that would suit me, and emailed the professor and asked if I had to have taken organic chemistry in order to sit in on the class, and she said, absolutely not. And so that was my, my uh, ticket to my future career, uh, was that class, and then future research in that area. So I've always come at this sort of from the side that looks at both human histories, but also looks at plants and their um, ecosystems that surround them, and how humans intervene with, manipulate, uh, benefit from, cause damage to environmental systems. And Catherine, how about you? How did you get interested in zooarchaeology, archaeology first, zoology second? How did that work for you? Well, in contrast to John, I was actually interested in archaeology as a kid, and in high school went on my first dig, um, and then by the time I got to college knew that I was interested in doing it enough to go on my first dig in rural Alaska. And then during um, my coursework in college, finally got to touch some bones during human evolution courses, and I was totally hooked on the combination of going on these Alaska adventures and working with bone remains. And then when I got to Alaska um, and then through going to graduate school and working there more, I got to see climate change as sort of an immediate concern in communities, both because of coastal erosion and damage to archaeological sites, but also uh, maybe more immediately because people rely so heavily on subsistence practices today, their concerns about policy and climate change and environmental degradation in their daily lives was really important. And so it was sort of a natural transition going from the fun of working in the lab and the excitement of doing the field work to to coming up with research questions that were actually applicable today and not just um, to people's ancestors and relating those questions and my interest in the bones themselves to both changes in climate and also cultural survival and understanding long-term records and, and sharing that information with people's ancestors or descendants, rather. Very interesting, but I, I wanted to ask you, as a matter of fact, you sort of uh, helped me segue into this uh, initial preliminary topic that I'd like to ask you, Catherine, and that is specifically, uh, when you do this kind of research, um, where do you focus? You focus first on the zoology, do you focus on your archaeology? How does it mesh? Well, I guess it's changed a little bit. I 
um, as a graduate student, wasn't fully aware of the bigger questions going on in communities or in terms of policy, but now the time has passed. I, I try to find my questions more in contemporary issues. So, for instance, the invasive species work, um, introductions work that I've done, climate questions that I'm thinking about, um, animal-human interactions that I'm thinking about tend to come more from talking to people, learning about um, concerns through the literature or even the newspaper, talking to resource managers, and trying to think about the questions that I can actually address using animal bones, since animals and animal management, marine management in this region is so um, important, the questions are not as hard to come by as one might think, and I can connect them, at least conceptually, to the animal bones and the archaeological material, and now my job is to connect them even more concretely to the data sets that I produce and trying to figure out how to make those data sets talk to contemporary data sets, which is the greatest challenge. One of the interesting uh, items that I'm paying attention to as I talk to both of you, and you are uh, certainly, by my definition, younger researchers, uh, just chronologically, I'm sure in terms of accomplishment, you're fine. But uh, one of the interesting elements that I'm picking up in this discussion is a, <clears throat> excuse me, a clear focus on relevance. And the question of climate change, Catherine, you had mentioned the entire question of coastal erosion, invasive species. Those are the types of questions that have a very contemporary tinge to them and major significance. Let me ask you, John, as uh, a, a student of uh, vegetation, agriculture, was that one of your key foci when you got into the profession or was it something that you developed as you went through your program and started to see, uh, maybe you got a eureka moment that said essentially, wait a minute, this type of work, this interdisciplinary research that you're doing has very serious relevance to uh, today and tomorrow's situations in the world. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I actually had a very similar um, kind of intellectual pathway that Catherine described in that when I began doing this type of work in, in graduate school in particular, I was interested in seeing these, these problems as relatively simple factors. Did people manipulate and change environments? And, and thought about it less as a recursive process of environmental change and human adaptation to change. So one of the ways in which my work is quite related to the contemporary world is that fundamentally what I study in agricultural systems is decision-making. I want to understand why farmers are making specific decisions about how, when um, to plant their crops, how to tend their crops, how to harvest their crops, and then, of course, the social roles that those food plants then have in society. And one of the ways in which this is relevant is we can think, okay, wheat, people have been growing wheat for tens of, well, 10,000 years um, in the parts of the world where I work, mainly in Turkey and in Israel. People were growing wheat thousands and thousands of years ago. People grow wheat today all over the Midwest of the United States. And the question is, um, can we just say, oh, they grew wheat, which is typically the first piece of evidence we get out of an archaeological data set and leave it at that? Can we just say, oh, they were wheat farmers and, and that's enough? And the answer, of course, as anyone who knows a farmer knows, is, is no, of course, that's not true. There's considerable diversity. Just because you're growing one crop, you can grow it in different ways. It can mean different things to you. And you can make very different decisions based on your incredibly local environment, where your fields are positioned. That happens today. 
That happened thousands of years ago, and teasing that out of the archaeological record is fundamentally where my interest lies. Do you ever, and I'm, I'm asking you, John, in particular, because when I was in school way back in the Pleistocene, um, the uh, general process and the general uh, direction in which these types of studies were taught were simply to understand the chronology and the circumstances of uh, the big issue, which at that time, of course, was domestication. And uh, you're clearly thinking well beyond that. Is that a function of developments in the field, or is it a pull to relevance and a pull to understanding more complicated issues with the human and environmental dynamic? Let me have you take a whack at that one first, John. Yeah, sure. So... um Domestication has never much interested me, and there is really important, interesting, cutting-edge work being done by scholars such as Melinda Zeter and Bruce Smith, on, among many, many others, on the topic of domestication worldwide and comparing you know, what we can learn from genetics to what we can learn from archaeology. Really amazing stuff done. But fundamentally, I'm interested in, okay, when people have a suite of domesticated resources available to them, how do they then make decisions? So I sort of ignore the first couple thousand years of agriculture because from my perspective, that's not where the interesting questions lie. I'm much more interested in those decision-making processes. And for me, those decision-making processes really kick into high gear when people become involved in very complex social systems. And so in the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern worlds where I work, that's in the time period where we have well-developed states with complex economies. When we get into the periods of empire, when we have the Persian, Hellenistic, uh, Roman empires coming into this part of the world, how do those very large-scale and complex political and social and economic systems have an impact on the day-to-day lives of farmers in small towns in remote areas uh, on the periphery of those empires? So for me, those are the questions that motivate me, and I can really understand those those issues of decision-making better at that scale than I can at thinking about broad-brush um, things such as, you know, why do people begin and how do people and when do people begin to domesticate crops? Catherine, let me ask you a similar question. I know both of you are basically interested in the Holocene, which uh, essentially takes in the last 10 plus thousand years. Was your research interest originally driven by domestication questions and uh, sort of technical academic kinds of issues like that, or was it powered by other factors? Um. Well, like John, I'm really interested in how people made decisions about the way they interacted with their landscape. And since I deal with hunter-gatherer populations in the far north, um, I was interested, obviously not in domestication, but sort of in broader issues of how people in those hunter-gatherer situations um, make choices, but not just make choices about subsistence, make choices about subsistence in the context of environmental or climate perturbation. So this is a region that's highly volatile, not just in terms of climate change, but also volcanic eruption, earthquake, and all of those kinds of things that seemingly threaten people on a daily basis. I don't think that's really true, but it's a place where decision-making is is pretty critical. So I was interested in those broader issues, um, but certainly not just how they affect subsistence in more broad terms, how they influence cultural change in that region and how that's reflected archaeologically and then how we can use those cultural changes to inform those same cultures that are living on that landscape today and how they might consider 
not necessarily adapting in the same way to changes in climate or environment that are occurring now because cultures have obviously changed dramatically, but how they can embrace their ancestors' methods or ideologies about um, climate change and environmental change or simply just look at their ancestors as inspiration for um, an adaptive response. So you did a fair amount of interviewing, I assume, with uh, indigenous populations as well? I did not do any formal interviewing, no, not at all. I did mostly, um, I collaborate with the Alutic Museum, which is a small tribal museum in Kodiak, Alaska, and I also collaborate with the Museum of the Aleutians, which is in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, and mm-hmm. they run they run sort of programs with the public and with elders, and through those partnerships, I've been able to meet with people and share my research through small museum exhibits and, you know, hire students who work in the area or are interested in coming to graduate school. So I'm not a formal, um, anthrop- you know, cultural anthropologist by any means at all, but more of an informal collaborator with the public. And we will get back to this very intriguing discussion of the nature of human interaction, human perception, climate change, right after these words. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you do- 
We are back with uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I have two guests who are both uh, working at the Department of Archaeology at Boston University, and both are environmental archaeologists with specialties. Uh, John, Mas- John Marston, Dr. John Marston, is a specialist in uh, agricultural systems and ethnobotany, and Dr. Uh, Catherine West is a zooarchaeologist, and she looks at the interaction of or the interrelationships between archaeology and uh, zoology. Um, we have been discussing the entire question of climate change and how uh, each researcher's work interfaces with climate change. And Catherine, and you in particular are looking and working with another organization that looks at the question of extinctions and uh, has a very sort of a contemporary outlook on applying the lessons of the past to the future. Can you talk a little bit about your specific research and how it is embracing those two aspects into in the contemporary world? Yes. Um, my, one of my collaborations is with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, specifically the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. They oversee much of the land in the Gulf of Alaska, particularly in island environments, and I am quite interested in how humans interacted with animals on in island environments because they tend to be um, rather vulnerable and also because people moved very rapidly among these um, environments. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been pretty concerned about the health of the islands across the Gulf of Alaska, and we know that people have lived on these islands perhaps up to 10,000 years or more. In many of the islands, the record is certainly 9,000 years or or less, so in the um, Holocene. And one of the questions that they've been asking is, how have bird populations been influenced by human occupation, specifically by through the introduction of invasive species? And they would like to restore many of these islands to some kind of original state. And as an archaeologist, I have to ask, what does that original state mean? Their argument right. is that that's before human occupation. And for them, human means historic occupation. So that would be with the arrival of Russian explorers and settlers in 1763. But, of course, we know that people have been there a lot longer than that, interacting in a very significant way with the landscape. Hunter-gatherers are often seen to be innocent and not, you know, having a footprint. However, they used their environments really heavily and likely had, and we see elsewhere in the world, that they had a strong influence on their environment for good or for bad. So one of the ways that I've tried to appeal to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's interest is to try to convey that information in a way that is understandable to contemporary resource managers who are looking at daily records of animal populations, not a thousand years of of records. So I've tried to use the archaeological record to both demonstrate the timing of various mammal species' arrival on these islands... We can use the historic record to look at things like cattle when they were introduced to Alaska Islands, as mind-blowing as that sounds. Also, foxes, red fox, and arctic fox were introduced historically. We have that written down. But other animals, like the small ground squirrel, it's not clear when they were introduced or arrived naturally on these islands, and so their categorization as an invasive species might be put into question since we now 
can find them in the archaeological record. I've established that, for example, on the island of Chirikov, which is just southwest of Anchorage in the Kodiak Archipelago, ground squirrels lived there for 2,000 years, and it was thought, using the historic record, that they were actually there for only about 150 to 200 years. So their permanence on the island or their interaction with the um, ecosystem there is now quite unclear, and it's not certain what should be done. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't now have an official position on that animal, but it's been called into question um, whether it's an invasive species or not. What is natural? What is introduced? It's sort of a a difficult question to answer when you throw archaeology into the mix. And so we hope to use that kind of record to understand when and how animals like this were introduced, whether it was by Native people, by... um, historic era Russian and American settlers, and how then those invasive species might have influenced bird populations specifically, which are the dominant animals that live on these islands and are of the greatest concern to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in terms of management because they are threatened by predators like foxes and even potentially ground squirrels that like to eat baby birds and eggs. So it's in that way that I've tried to connect those two records. John, what about you? You've talked, you made a mention in the break about globalization and your observations on changing species and and, uh, changing patterns in agriculture through time. Tell us a little bit about that interfacing, if you would, please. Sure, yeah. One of one of the areas that I've um, been interested in is the sustainability of agriculture. And when I say sustainability here, I mean it both from sort of the environmental perspective. How can one um, ensure the future of agricultural production? You know, is there enough water? Is there enough soil, etc.? But also the economic sustainability of agriculture and how does how do different agricultural strategies or practices fit into kind of a broader economic network that allow them to be replicated over the span of tens of years, hundreds of years, maybe even, you know, potentially thousands of years. And what's interesting is that um, some work I've done in in central Turkey where a large body of of data that I've assembled comes from um, indicates that this is actually an area where agriculture is a bit challenging. It's dry. It has generally good soils, but it doesn't get a ton of of rainfall, and there can be bad years where the traditional crops of the area, things like wheat, lentils, um, don't don't make it, and it it can be tough to get by. And so thinking Mm -hmm. about both the interface of climate change, but also thinking about economic pressures on um, local farmers and how they make decisions. So, for example, you can plant wheat or you can plant barley. Um, They grow similarly. They have similar sort of life cycles, use the same technologies to plant and harvest them. People generally prefer to eat wheat. It seems to be that way in the ancient world as well as the modern world. But barley is much more drought-tolerant. Um, it can survive in more marginal environments. So one, you know, really kind of risk-averse strategy is just to plant barley, but then the problem is that most years you're stuck with just barley, and that's not what most people want to eat. It's less economically valuable. So, you know, farmers have to make a balance between these, these different strategies. In the Roman period, what I found was a very um, distinct pattern where it appears that Roman taxation systems required that people from this area pay their taxes in wheat. And so they were essentially constraining the decision-making of local farmers such that farmers had to um, conform to external demands, which 
put in them into a system where they were doing something that was environmentally risky and perhaps not sustainable kind of over the long term, especially given um, eventual climatic downturns, you know, periods of drought. So that parallels very interestingly with the contemporary world. Um, we know that that farming systems in the contemporary world in most developed countries have a lot to do with government subsidy practices and mm-hmm. economic networks, you know, globalized economic networks. And what I found in central Turkey is that people were traditionally planting wheat and barley and other kinds of cereals that they could grow without irrigation, but the government began subsidizing irrigation agriculture to produce cash crops. And so farmers in this area started pumping water out of the local river and using that to grow um, sugar beets and to grow onions, both of which require massive amounts of water and were not traditionally grown in this area. And those are grown specifically for sale on the broader European market. Turkey is integrated into the European um, economic zone, and so they're able to sell these things with limited duties and so forth. And so what we see is a dramatic transformation of the local agricultural strategies in response to you know, globalized agricultural, um, sorry, economic patterns. And I can't help but see this as, as being really a striking parallel with the Roman agricultural system. Um, when the Romans came in and sort of enforced a new agricultural system, it, it didn't end well for people at the site. In fact, it caused um, a period of abandonment of the site eventually. And this may have been due to the unsustainability of the agricultural system. And it makes me a bit, a bit nervous for uh, farmers in the area today. Uh, along those lines, John, I'd, I'd like to ask you uh, whether or not you have been able in any kind of a practical sense uh, been able to approach government agencies, say in Turkey or other places where you may have worked, and said, hey, wait a minute, uh, we have some reflections and we have some data that can actually help you when you start to address, address such questions as sustainability, as the maintain, maintenance of productivity, and the adjustments that local farmers need to make to maintain systems. Have you dealt with that type of situation before, and have you been actually interacting with any government op- officials on that count? So in general, I am reluctant to try to come in as somebody from a foreign country of course. to look at some stuff and try to tell local people what to do, especially in the context of farming when I am not a farmer. I, I, live in a large city. I grew up in a large city. I have never planted a, a grain of wheat in my life. And if you saw my backyard <laughs> garden, you would be skeptical yeah. of my talents. Um, right. But... But with regard to um, working with um, managers and government officials, this is promising, and we need more of this in the field. The problem, of course, being that I'm also not really trained as a kind of a public policy um, you know, in a public policy realm. And so I think what's needed are partnerships that allow academic researchers to work with policy experts and then eventually to work with, um, you know, government agencies. One area where I I have had um, a really interesting connection is with members of the the governmental agency that manages rangelands, um, grazing lands in central Turkey, of which um, animal grazing, especially of sheep, is still uh, of considerable economic importance, sheep and cattle. And they are worried about pasture degradation, and they're interested in coming up with more sustainable ways to manage pasture lands so that they don't become overgrazed. And this is very similar to what agencies such as the Bureau of Land Management do in the United States. And so um, I've partnered a bit with a researcher there, not in a formal way, but um, he's 
been very interested in what we find archaeologically about the impacts of animal grazing on certain grass types, certain specific um, you know, grass species in the environment and how well they tolerate long-term grazing. And so our data give him a longer-term data set that he can use, and he does you know, sort of the conventional thing one does as an ecologist today, which is set up small-scale experiments, you know, keep sheep out of a certain patch, watch how quickly the plants grow back. But this gives him a, a small time depth as well as a small area, and we have access to data sets that are much larger, both in time and space. And so that's actually been a very interesting partnership. It hasn't gone into any direct practices, um, but it's a good conversation, and it's the kind that I think we need to continue. Uh, Catherine, you seem to certainly have to had a much more direct interface with governmental agencies. And tell me a little bit about that symbiosis, whether, whether there's productive input on your end and productive feedback on theirs. Well, that relationship for me is pretty new. It's been sort of, I've been trying to cultivate that, those relationships for some time. And I've been to many talks at the Society for American Archaeology, et cetera, where people say, well, I tried to share these data with a government agency and they just weren't interested or they rejected my hypotheses or whatever it might be. So I went into this with my eyes quite wide open that it might not be of any interest at all. And the key for me has been finding people within those bigger agencies who are really they just think archaeology is cool and interesting, and they're willing uh-huh. to sit down and talk to you. So, like you said, climate change is a hook. Archaeology itself is a hook, too. People are, are interested. They think it, there's something intriguing for them. And if you can present your work in the right way that employs the vocabulary that they use, employs this, the scale of data that they're interested in, which is this is one of the major um, limitations of archaeology, is that the scale of data is so different from a, a, a resource manager scale. But if you can start to bridge that gap, just like John was saying about um, thinking about communication via policy experts or, or some similar um, method, then they start to listen and get over the coolness factor and really turn to the value or the potential value of that work. So I've worked for several years thinking about how I can communicate those things well and, and found the people within the refuge who are really interested in archaeology and come to it on their terms rather than my terms because my terms are strange to them and I want to make it understandable in a way that's actually useful. That is a very intriguing uh, argument and, and one that I think is very, very significant. So let me ask you sort of, uh, well, let me backtrack for a, a little bit. Uh, Catherine, you made a very interesting point that um, I think a lot of people might have missed, and, and that is specifically that um, changes to the environment had been generated by indigenous people before the Euro-American imprint on the landscape. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. Tell me a little bit about how you found that and how you've been able to demonstrate that in terms of your research. Well, since I work in the Pacific Northwest and the subarctic area, that area is a beautiful example of how people have altered their landscapes. You know, you can see that very clearly in an agricultural community like John has been describing. But among hunter-gatherers, it's a little more difficult to see. Um, one of the ways, and this is not from my own research, but one of the really interesting new ways that people are seeing that is the construction of clam gardens up and down the northwest coast of North America, where people literally built stone enclosures and raked the earth to get clams to grow in a way they wanted to. This is not a very obvious thing on the landscape. 
and it escaped people for a really long time, but it's a way in which groups of hunter-gatherers manipulated the shoreline to generate more of a resource that they wanted. In Kodiak, Alaska, where I do my own work, I didn't actually see any, in my own research on fish, I haven't actually seen any effect of hunter-gatherer fishing on salmon populations, which has been my main focus, but a colleague of mine, Robert Copperell, saw depression of Pacific cod fish populations through time on Kodiak over about a 6,000-year period. So both through the size of the animal and the relative abundance of that animal in the archaeological record suggests that maybe people were at least locally able to depress fish populations. Um, And one of the interesting things I think about in the Northwest and the Gulf of Alaska, the subarctic region, is it's such a rich area in terms of resources. And it's not entirely clear that people really were experiencing any kind of resource stress. They seem to maybe have had local influences on animal populations, but there's not been any major demonstration that they depressed, um, say, marine mammal populations or substantially depressed salmon populations in any kind of way. There's been some hint of this. Nor yet has there been a strong demonstration that climate on a broad scale influenced those animal populations such that people really suffered from um, a depression of those resources. So I think one of the more important ways we can think about this is climate, yes, operates on these huge millennial scales, but it also operates on a seasonal and a daily basis. And that might be where we see that interaction in a much more powerful way. And this is the thing that's most difficult to get at in terms of the archaeological record. I diverted a little from your question there, but... No, that's fine. I think I want to get back to it in our next section, which segment, which will be following right after these break, uh, please keep your dials tuned to the station and we will be back with you forthwith. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Second Wind Success, hosted by Gene Garino, is all about helping boomers catch their second wind in business and life. Most of us achieve our greatest success after the age of 50. Life has a learning curve with a few stumbling blocks along the way. As long as you stay committed to your vision and adapt along the way, you'll find the success you're looking for. Tune in to Second Wind Success every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are back with a climate change episode on today's program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeologists. My two specialists are Dr. John Marston, who is a uh, agriculture and vegetation paleoethnobotany specialist at the Department of Archaeology at Boston University. And my second guest is Dr. Catherine West at the same institution, who is a specialist in zooarchaeology. Um, let me start with you, Catherine, since you work in, uh, in the northern reaches of the world. Um, obviously, a lot of interdisciplinary work goes into the types of uh, research that you're doing. Uh, you, in particular, are a zooarchaeologist. What other types of research, what other types of research venues do you integrate in your interpretive modules uh, using different types of scientific specialties, and how do they uh, converge around your particular research area? Well, I think I learned extremely early on, maybe in my third year of grad school, that there was no way I could answer the questions I wanted to answer by myself. And I started small by taking classes in fisheries ecology, in stable isotope chemistry, just so that I could see what else was going on out there and, and sort of learn the vocabulary of those other disciplines and how they might influence my own work. And obviously that grew as I... Um, finished my graduate education and became an independent researcher. And now, to answer the questions I have about how humans interacted with climate and their local environments through time, I really rely heavily on people who can reconstruct paleoclimate for me beyond the the zooarchaeological record. So I collaborate with geochemists at the University of Alabama who are helping me to understand how local climate change um, or how local climate changed using a variety of methods. One is looking at the stable oxygen isotopes in shellfish, and those do come directly from the archaeological record. And not only making that reconstruction, but then working with other climate scientists to help us interpret those data. What do they actually mean? What are the variability in them mean? And then coming back to me as a social scientist and trying to connect those to the human aspect. In addition to that, I want to know how animals responded to these broader and local climate changes. And so I work with biologists, particularly marine mammal biologists, who can help me understand how these animals respond to changes in their local environments and then connect that back to the climate scientists who can explain how that might relate to broader changes in climate. So this is a very... My whole research program depends very heavily on um, geochemists, biologists, also geneticists, to bring together all of these lines of inquiry to help me answer my questions about Alaska prehistoric subsistence and how it relates to these broader environmental changes. Hopefully all focused on the social science questions in that context. Interesting. John, 
What kind of interdisciplinary interfaces do you have? Yeah, so um, in the in the earlier segment, Catherine mentioned that one of the challenges with studying climate change is we often look at climate change over these extremely long time frames, hundreds of years, millennia, and yet um, for individual farmers making decisions or foragers going out looking for animals, um, you do that on a, a day-to-day and a seasonal and an annual basis. And so the question has always been, can we get climate change down to the resolution at which people actually make decisions and at which people actually interact with climates? So one of the data sets that I've been trying to cultivate in central Turkey with a colleague at Cornell University is looking at tree rings. And tree rings are amazingly useful for archaeologists. We can use them to date things extremely precisely, date events very precisely. Um, For example, there's a structure that exists um, at one site in central Turkey where I've worked. It's built out of a a lot of very large trees, um, very old trees. They're 800, 1,000 years old trees when they're cut down and incorporated into the structure. They're well-preserved. And we actually know within a 10-year time frame exactly the year in which those trees were cut due to dendrochronology methods. But what's cool about this is that the tree rings themselves encode the atmospheric composition at the time that tree ring was forming. And so by looking at differences between one strictly dated year ring and the next strictly dated year ring, we can actually look at differences in climate from one year to the next, and we know exactly which years those are. So by doing a whole amazingly massive amount of geochemical work on these tree rings, it's actually possible to reconstruct interannual differences in climate and even possibly seasonal differences in climate um, over very long time frames, hundreds of years um, in central Turkey. And so we're hoping that by generating a data set like this, we'll be able to actually look at decision-making of farmers at a much more fine scale. How really were they responding? Were there years of drought or, you know, if there were two or three years of drought in a row, how did that possibly change agricultural practices in a way that, you know, one drought year every 50 years um, might not have an effect. I'd like to put you both sort of on the spot right now because uh, you're both working in very sensitive regions of the world. And as you obviously both know, we are in a climate situation, a climate change crisis situation. I'd like to ask you, each one of you, let's start with you, Catherine, what have you learned about climatic sensitivity and human and the human condition going forward? What types of stuff, what type of changes do we need to make in terms of our policy and our orientation in your part of the world that requires immediate attention and uh, where you have been pointed in that direction as a result of some of your archaeological research? Um, Well, I think the most apparent thing that anyone could see when they visit these landscapes is that coastal erosion is quite severe. In fact, there are communities in northern Alaska that are calling, being called the first climate change refugees as their villages literally crumble into the ocean. So it is quite obvious to any of us that when you walk across this landscape, you can see climate change in action in front of you. Storms are more severe, wave action is high, and the way I see that, and the island I've been working on most recently called Chirikov, nobody lives there today, but the archaeological sites where people have lived for 5,000 years are falling out of the banks of this island in front of your eyes. So you can see not only contemporary communities dissolving into the ocean and along with them their cultural um, 
their unique cultures, but also their ancestors' remains just crumbling into the ocean behind them. So that's the most apparent and um, very heartbreaking thing that you see across the Gulf of Alaska and northern Alaska, of course. Otherwise, um, people in this region are, they are concerned with climate change, but most immediately concerned with resource acquisition because it's not important only to subsistence groups and for two reasons. One, for providing nourishment to their communities, but also for their own cultural survival. Subsistence plays a massive role in cultural identity in this region. And so they're concerned about maybe climate on a sort of, Um, more abstract level, but what's happening, as John was just saying, on a daily basis to the resources that they want to use? Will the salmon run come at the same time? Will the birds be available for um, their annual hunt, etc.? But bigger than that, in the Gulf of Alaska, subsistence is the major economic focus. We have the biggest salmon runs in the world. We have... um, other massive fisheries on which all of these communities depend, the cities, villages, um, all level of society here depends on these. And they're concerned with, again, the sort of daily change in environmental conditions and connecting that to broader climate issues is challenging, but you can see in the past, even over the last hundred years, how decadal changes have severely influenced economics and the ability of fishermen to do what they need to do, um, and then wondering and still wondering how that will influence future decision-making. And I think right now that's a little bit vague and, and of great concern, but people are not necessarily sure how to connect those broad fears about climate change with the contemporary and very immediate economic concerns. So those are two or three big places where I see climate playing an important role. What about in, your, in central Turkey, John? Well, the the Middle East, as we all too too sadly know, is really beset by political turmoil, by massive movements of of refugees across the landscape, by um, conflict and violence. And you had uh, Eric Klein on your show uh, a few weeks ago, and he talked about the collapse of the Bronze Age, the late Bronze Age, around, say, 1200 B.C. in this part of the world, and that it was similarly beset by, by massive movements of invaders and refugees moving across the landscape, and also um, seems to be correlated with, it, with a period of severe dry um, conditions, aridity, and crop failures across this landscape. Um, predicted climate change for this part of the world is, is not a positive thing, whereas some parts of the world may get wetter, um, perhaps unpredictably so, big storms, but, but more water. This area of the world is predicted to get drier. It's already a dry region. Agriculture is um, only possible under irrigation in some areas. And as we know from the recent history of California, when rain falls sparsely, even an irrigation-based system can really suffer. And so in a future where you have massive movements of people, refugees, um, violence, and and conflict, and you throw on top of that the predicted future patterns of climate change, uh, it it doesn't look great. I I have a hard time being optimistic about the future of um, the agricultural practices as practiced now in this part of the world. John, along those same lines, how do we uh, infuse our message or dis, uh, dispense our message to the people who matter, to politicians, to policymakers, to international relief agencies? How do we do that as archaeologists? What are your ideas on that? 
It's a great question. Uh, it's one I wrestle with. Um, what more can I do? How better can I express my um, findings and, and my, my thoughts about this? And uh, I will wholeheartedly admit that I have colleagues who do this in, in a far better and more effective way than I do. But um, one of the places we can start is by taking science and translating it for everybody else. Um, what you do with this show, the kinds of opportunities when we have the, the possibility to write, say, an article for a magazine like National Geographic or Archaeology Magazine, a magazine that appeals not only to academics and scientists, but appeals to broader swaths of the public and can help them understand the potential uses and misuses of archaeology and um, paleoclimatic information in the future. Um, I think organizations like the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, have done a fairly good job of taking science, paleoclimate science, and making it policy relevant. But of course, we've also seen the challenges in politicizing um, some of their efforts. So it's really a challenge, and it's something we have to keep doing, even in you know the potential face of um, some people who actively don't want to see our work get out there. Catherine, we only have a minute and a half left. What about your thoughts on disseminating the message of archaeology and climate change to policymakers and politicians? I completely agree with what John said, and I would also remind all of us that we are archaeologists and that there are communications experts, climate communications experts specifically, also policy experts whose job it is to communicate this information. And we are remiss if we don't find them and have them teach us how best to communicate this information and really um, develop collaborations with people whose expertise is in that area. We would be well served by doing that. Um, and on that note, I think we are going to have to close the program. I want to thank my very special guests, Dr. John Marston, Assistant Professor at the Department of Archaeology at Boston University, and thank you. the direct, Director of the Archaeology Laboratory. Thank you. Yes. And Dr. Catherine West, who is at the same institution and the director of Boston University's Zooarchaeology Lab. Thanks to everyone, and we will uh, be broadcasting another episode next week. And until that, pay attention. The uh, lessons of the past are a directive for the future. Thank you, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.